Welcome to Open Minds from Creative Commons. I'm Eric Stoyer. As you may know, it's Creative Commons' 20th anniversary this year, and one of the ways we're celebrating is with this podcast, a series of conversations with people working on the issues we're involved with and subjects we're excited about. On today's episode, Sarah Pearson, Creative Commons Senior Counsel, speaks with Coraline Ada Emke. Emke has been an active contributor to the open source community for more than 25 years. She's a developer, writer, speaker, musician, and activist. She's the creator of Contributor Covenant, which is a code of conduct used by more than 100,000 open source projects and communities. On Emke's website, she describes herself as being a big-time open source troublemaker. She's opposed to the idea that open source software should be available to be used by anyone for any purpose. Her view stands in contrast to what is known as the open source definition, which says that open source licenses cannot limit who may use a program, even if they're evil. Emke is the creator of the Hippocratic License, which prohibits the use of open source in conjunction with human rights violations. She's also behind the Organization for Ethical Source, an initiative that aims to ensure that the work of open source developers is being used for social good. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Coraline Ada Emke. Well, I thought maybe we'd start the conversation by talking a little bit about your personal entry into open source specifically. So I've heard a little bit about how you got into software development, but I'm curious about how you got specifically into open software and what drew you to it. Sure. Um, well, I've been uh, I've been working with computers my entire life, and uh, actually, in the early days, um, when we got our first home computer, as a TRS eighty, and later a Commodore sixty four, there was no mechanism for software distribution um, aside from ordering floppies through the mail. Even actually, to be clear, when I started, you couldn't. There weren't even floppies. You had cassette decks. So the standard way of getting programs on your computer when I started out was flipping through computer magazines and literally typing in source code. So that open sharing of source code is how I learned. And um, of course, when that's your operating environment, you also want to give back. That's a natural human instinct. And uh, so I did that throughout my career before open source was a thing. Um, in the 90s, I was very involved with the Perl community, and Perl had its own license, the artistic license, which I think was a precursor to some of the open source licenses. And I contributed freely and openly and enthusiastically to uh, CPAN, which was their, uh, their library repository and distribution method. And um, so it was very natural when open source came along to just adapt to that that framework for sharing source code. And do I remember correctly that you're also a musician and artist and so you've done a bit in with open in that realm as well. Yeah, my current project is called Calamity Orchestra and it's inspired really by the nostalgic listening habits I've developed over quarantine. <laughs> I went back to a lot of the uh, the foundational music in my life 
And um, so Calamity Orchestra is a project that looks at current social political issues through the lens of, uh, of 80s music, um, in particular post-punk and goth and electronica, new wave, um, things like that. And uh, we are 100% open with everything we're doing with this project. I stream um, music production and recording um, every week. And I make those archives of those streams available under a Creative Commons license. We released our first single in December, and we're happy to upload it to um, Wiki Commons. And uh, we also make all of the individual parts of our songs available on Wiki Commons, are available through Creative Commons license, so that people can remix. And we've even gone so far as to as to put our band meetings. Um, archived in public under a Creative Commons license. So literally everything about this project is being done in the open and with the intent of enriching the commons with our creative work. That is so cool. So I want to talk a bit about um, the movement, basically, that you have founded and created. Um, But maybe to start with that, um, we'll talk about kind of what you see as being broken within open source and what inspired you? Well, there was a moment. Um, I've long been critical of the way that open source is practiced. And one of the first contributions I made since my uh, social justice awakening, if you will, um, was the creation of Contributor Covenant, which was unique at the time. It was the first code of conduct for open source projects, for open source communities. And I've continued developing that over the past uh, seven years. And that really brought about a change in the way we think about the practice of open source because it's one of the one of the few examples of a focus on the community around open source as opposed to the consumers of open source. And um, I've also done a lot of criticism of the meritocratic underpinnings of open source and, and how that fails especially marginal fo- marginalized folks. And, uh, but there was a specific incident in 2019 that started this particular effort. Um, there's a Latinx, Chicanx activist organization called Mejente. And Mejente launched a campaign called No Tech for ICE to protest the use of technology in supporting ICE's program of human rights abuses at our border. And uh, so they were, they started tweeting out the names of tech companies who had lucrative contracts with ICE. And among those companies that they listed was a company called Chef. And Chef makes software that makes managing servers easier. Um, And it's very, very widely used. So there was one developer named Seth Vargo who saw Mahente's tweet, a retweet actually, um, about his former employer. And Seth is a very active open source contributor, and he'd even built some open source tooling around Chef's offering to make it easier to use. So he felt a sense of responsibility for how the software that he had created was being used by ICE and Chef profiting by that. So in an act of conscience, he pulled down his source code, his source code listing, 
and he pulled his code out of Commons distribution. And this caused failures in, uh, in builds of servers around the world. And within two hours, the code was all restored. And uh, GitHub restored the code. That's where most open source developers store their code. And um, the uh, RubyGems organization also restored the libraries so they could be freely downloaded again. And I remember feeling at the time the sense of outrage and helplessness because here was an engineer who was rightly trying to take responsibility for how his work was being used. And he had no tools and no support. And in fact, the open source establishment had to side with human rights abusers over a creator. And that struck me as fundamentally, as a fundamental flaw in the way the open source establishment deals with ethical issues. So uh, soon after I wrote um, the Hippocratic License, which is an ethical open source license based on the United Nations Human Rights Declaration. And um, about a month later, I started the Ethical Source Working Group um, to bring together people from around the globe and of all specializations, not just software developers, to start to think about the problem of how we can how we can bring an ethical framework to bear in the work that we do as technologists. And the working group since then has grown to 200 members in 16 time zones. And uh, very happy to, to say that we also incorporated as a nonprofit in Geneva, Switzerland. And the, we're working now to professionalize the work that we do and to uh, transform what started as a, as a movement into a sustainable practice backed by a solid organization. It's such an incredible, incredible story. And I've heard you talk a bit about how there's a need to attack these ethical concerns from multiple angles and not just focusing on licensing, for example. But can you talk a little bit about how you see the Organization for Ethical Source, like what, what your initial focus areas will be in, in terms of how to, how to attack this issue? Sure. Um, you're right. We are taking a multi-pronged approach. Um, we have a legal team now that is going to be working on some broad topics in ethical licensure um, and focusing on um, strengthening the Hippocratic license. And we also have a project underway that was brought by a young woman named Dawn Wages who wants to create an anti-racist license. So licensing is an important part of our strategy. But really, I think the phase that we're in now is a phase of experimentation. Um, this is uncharted territory. And so we're trying to support ethical licensing experiments broadly um, because we can learn from each other, we can try out different things, and we can hopefully advance, advance on that front. But uh, like I said, a big part of my focus has always been the practice of open source. I think that open source as it is practiced today places undue burdens on maintainers and creators in service of making things as easy as possible for adopters, and adopters in this case being major tech companies. So I think we've really skewed, you know, in the, in the early days of open source, it was very important to tailor an appeal to tech companies and mm -hmm. to the broader tech community in order to get traction. 
but I feel like the pendulum swung too far. And now we, we give more rights to consumers of our contributions than we do to creators and maintainers. And they're being left behind and they're, they're, they're working hard and not seeing any value, any personal value or personal remuneration for the work that they put in. So that's one of our, that's one of our goals is to, uh, is to shift the focus, shift the balance back to um, consumer rights as well as creator rights. Um, we're also working on governance. Transparent governance is absolutely essential to a healthy open source community. That includes not only a code of conduct that's fairly and transparently enforced, but also governance policies that are transparent and fair that center justice and equity in our communities. This is uh, sometimes swept under the rug or sometimes uh, put in a box as DEI, but uh, it's broader than that. Um, when you make things better for marginalized people, you benefit everyone. So uh, there are lots of different angles that we're attacking this problem from. And um, really, even for us, it's a time of experimentation. This is uncharted territory in our field. So that's why I'm uh, especially interested in bringing people into the working group who are from outside of tech. We have ethicists, we have um, human rights workers, uh, we have academics who study, we have sociologists, um, we have people who are bringing their skills from different disciplines that have been working to bring ethics to their work that hopefully we can learn from. Obviously the, the response to your work has been incredibly positive and there's been so much momentum in the last year and a half. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about the put any, I guess the biggest sources of pushback that you've received from within the open community and where those, where you think those are stemming from? Well, um, something that I say quite often and it does not make me very many friends is that the founders of the open source movement, um, were coming from a place that was very strongly based in libertarian philosophies and libertarian politics. And the libertarian platform places individual liberty above communal liberty. It says that, uh, that you should do what's best for you, regardless of the impact on the people around you. And I think this really embodies the cult of the individual that runs rampant in white Western um, societies, and especially in Silicon Valley. So a lot of what we're running into is, uh, is wrestling with this concept of freedom that, is, that exists in a vacuum, that exists outside of societal concerns. And so it's an uphill battle to convince people who truly believe that tech is neutral and truly believe that unfettered open, unrestricted open is a moral virtue. Um, that's what we're going up against. And also, frankly, we're attacking the status quo. And there are a lot of people who have been very, very well served by the status quo, who feel very threatened when the status quo is, quo is criticized. And uh, we're, we're going to be changing the status quo in, ethical, in open source. That's our mission. Um, and it's a difficult fight. And it's interesting you said that I have a lot of positive support because most of what I see is negative. Um, mm. Those positive voices are drowned out by, uh, by people in the establishment, by 
open source traditionalists and by trolls. But uh, to get to something deeper that that I was kind of hearing in your question, um, I think the conflict between open source traditionalists and people who want to promote ethical source, um, it's a little bit more fundamental than that. Um, I just reread um, Eleanor Ostrom um, this year. And um, one of the things that I took away from it is very early on in her book, she distinguishes between two types of commons. There's the open access commons and the common property commons or the shared property commons. And um, it's very clear that the founders of free and open software um, follow the open access model. This is why Freedom Zero, the, the right to use the software for any purpose without restriction, that's where that comes from, the notion mm -hmm. of open access. And uh, there are some side effects of going with an open access model. It requires very strong governance, and that governance is institutional, conservative, and slow to change, slow to respond to changing conditions. And one of the things that Ostrom emphasizes is that regardless of which Collins model you follow, um, the optimal strategy to keep people playing by the rules is to have cheap and efficient enforcement. And what we have with open access is uh, an IP model. We've, we've structured, we have you know, an incredibly deep licensing infrastructure. We spend a ton of money on enforcement and that actually goes against what Ostrom said is necessary for healthy commons. And I really, I take exception, or I think we're wrong about, about the open access framing. And I think my view of open source and really all the digital commons is more of a common property model. In a common property model, um, the contracts that we, that we agree to between participants creators and consumers of resources in the commons um, are not legally binding contracts necessarily, and they don't require a appeal to a central authority or to a court system for enforcement. Rather, the contracts are social contracts. They're contracts based around norms. And the great thing about contracts based around norms is that they evolve over time. Once, once you've committed to a license for a piece of software, you're stuck with the terms of that license forever, unless you go through the very arduous process of, uh, of relicensing. With a social contract framework, the social norms are constantly evolving in response to changing conditions in the community. And the community self-polices, the community establishes the norms, establishes the rules for participating, and it's all done with the health of the overall community in, in mind, not just the health of what has been produced or how it's being used, but also the impact on creators and maintainers. And I think that model opens the door for things like social responsibility, things like thinking about the impact of the work that we do, not on consumers, but on the people that that the technology is actually going to be used on. In short, the societal impact of the work that we do. And I think that lens is missing from the open access framing. And do you see that as building a top 
the open access licensing model that kind of underpins the the open access version of the commons or or is it something rather that sits to the side of it i'm curious about that because it seems to me like the open access model is really designed with this kind of universality in mind which necessarily makes it really hard to contextualize and and to to maintain kind of fluid norms yeah on a global scale I think that, uh, I think it, I don't know for sure, honestly. I think uh, that's one of the things that this effort needs to explore. How can these two models peacefully coexist? Can they peacefully coexist? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where the licensing aspect of the work that we're doing comes in, is trying to add ethical layering on top of um, an established enforcement uh, mechanism, um, which may work and it may not work. Um, I think if we have to do a radical reframing of the commons, and I, my sense is that we do, that's going to be even more work. Um, right. But the benefits, I think the benefits are there. I want to give an example, and this ties back to your music question. Um, the single that we released in December um, was called Cameras. And it was about how with the massive protests happening worldwide around racism and anti-fascism, anti-racism and anti-fascism, um, everything was mediated by cameras, whether cell phone cameras, police officers, body cameras, or news cameras. And that's what the song was about. And we have a videographer. We wanted to release a video with a single. And so I pointed him at the Wiki Commons page um, where media on the Black Lives Matter protests were posted. And um, there's video there, and there's all sorts of resources there. So he worked on the video, and he came with the first draft. And the, the thing that immediately struck me was there were so few Black faces in the protest footage. Um, it was alarming. I mean, I could count them on one hand. And this was a, a four-minute video. And uh, I thought about why that might be and realized that for a lot of Black Americans taking part in those protests, having their face on camera creates safety issues, like significant safety issues. So I understood why they weren't represented there. But the commons is part of how we record and record history and tell the story of our society. So what does it mean when it's not safe to tell the full story, when it's not safe to create a historically accurate portrayal of what's been happening in this country? And open access does not solve that problem. One thing I've been thinking a bit about is, the you know, there are some ways in which the fact that absolute freedom is not paramount almost feels like a departure from open um, itself by some perspectives of what open means. Yeah. And that, in other words, I guess there are ways in which the primacy of absolute freedom, you know, that is in itself a value. Um, and so I could imagine, you know, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear from you why, what led you to not just want to walk away from the movement completely? What motivated you to want to stay in it and try to to make it better? Because I believe in the mission. I believe that if we are thoughtful and deliberate, 
we can use our collaborative skill at building software, building new technologies and innovating for social good. And the reason we don't is we're not incentivized to do so. There's no money in it. No one's going to pay for social good. But I believe that we can. I believe that we can find ways to incentivize pro-social behavior. And I believe in the power of technology to transform lives. Honestly, I grew up in a town of 500 people in the swamps of Virginia with no prospects. And I dropped out of college and I had nothing. I had no future, but I, but I had my love of technology. And by a series of very happy accidents, I got involved with a tech career. And that has lifted me out of poverty. It has made me secure. I have a home. I have, I can take care of my daughter. I have, my life is good. My life, I'm, I'm well paid. And technology has absolutely turned my life around. And my mission has always been to make sure that as many people as possible, especially the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, the most undervalued people, have the same kind of opportunity that I had to turn their lives around. And open source is an important component of that journey. It's so inspirational. Um, I guess the last question I wanted to ask was just kind of a connection back to Creative Commons. So you know from providing um, really useful input during the strategy process that our new strategic plan is kind of a move away from just focusing on more sharing under CC licensing and trying to focus more on better sharing and trying to think about what better sharing looks like. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about what better sharing means to you and or any ways in which you see Creative Commons and the Organization for Ethical Source potentially working together, at least working in parallel toward the same ends. I think uh, I think that from what I've seen of the of the Creative Commons strategy, um, is that the organization is starting to think about impact, and uh, you know freedom doesn't exist in a vacuum, and the Commons doesn't exist in a vacuum, and the work that that I do with Ethical Source, the work that you do with Creative Commons, the work that Wikimedia does, the work that the Free Software Foundation does, all of these digital Commons. Um, governance bodies does has not historically focused on impact. It's like, oh, we got it released. It's in the public view. We're done. And mm-hmm. I think uh, I was very heartened to see that um, Creative Commons is starting to think about, well, what is the impact of the content that we make available? What does it mean in a societal context? Who does it help? Who does it hurt? Asking these questions is critical because it's about taking responsibility for the work that we do and understanding that the work that we do doesn't exist in a vacuum. So I'm hoping that Creative Commons and Ethical Source can find common ground in thinking about the impact and thinking about ways to maximize societal benefit while minimizing harm. Thank you so much. I so admire your work and I really think you are making the open movement a more equitable place. So I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Open Minds from Creative Commons. 
Special thanks to the musician Broke for Free, whose track Daybird you heard at the beginning of this episode and you're listening to right now. It's available under the Creative Commons Attribution License, meaning it's free for anyone to use. You can find it at the Free Music Archive, freemusicarchive.org. Please subscribe to our show so you don't miss any of our conversations with people working to make the internet and our global culture more open and collaborative. We'll be back soon with another episode. Talk to you then.